Today is another chapter in My Life, My Practice, and I'm here with Pamuto Biku, young fellow, I guess it's all relative. You're in your 30s? 30s, yeah. Uh, I'm in New Hampshire on a rainy day at the Jaitavana Monastery, and I've just come out for the Katina, and I thought it would be beautiful to take an opportunity to interview uh, Pumuto. Uh, Pumuto is an interesting character. He's uh, been a monk for about seven... This is my eighth. Eighth eighth reign. Eighth reign. And he is a rarity somewhat in the West. He is practicing the Dutangas, or the wandering monk uh, life, around in New England. And... You can see the background of the weather. This is actually October. And you can imagine taking up this wandering life in rural New England. It's a little bit different than ancient India in the 5th century or Thailand. Um, A lot of young Western monks have aspired to that. It sounds appealing, but the reality might be a little bit different when you're out there. And it's been raining for three days, and you're under a, at the foot of a tree under a plastic tarp. <laughs> but we'll find out more about that when we talk to Biku Pamuto. Let's talk about what you were before you were a monk. And this is more or less a classic American experience. I'm Canadian, mm-hmm. and it doesn't happen so much, but the, the American military. So you were a soldier in the American mm-hmm. military. Yes. And yeah. when did you join? Uh, it was uh, 2003. Um, it, it was. you were how old? I was 18 or 19 at the time. Mm-hmm. I was I was pretty much... In a in a gap after after high school and realizing I was really on this threshold. If I if I moved out into the world and I got um, I, I got a, a significant other, a girlfriend, I got a car, I got a house, I would suddenly have liabilities that would require constant employment. And I was just on that threshold. Really, I don't have these yet. I have, but I have basic needs. I need food, shelter, clothing some spending money for the occasional thing. And for me, the military seemed to provide that. Um, it would, it would. I mean, there certainly there were liabilities, but it seemed like it would account for my basic needs and it would give me a structure where I could try to figure out what I wanted to do. And it's a disciplined structure. You're, it's mm-hmm. like, it's similar. It's not all that different from monasticism, except mm-hmm. for its ultimate aim except that it's completely different <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> except that the intent is yeah. is 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 going into the world and is is and is um, also uh, combative aggressive you're trying to get your way in things and I found that's ultimately why it could not work but I learned so much about the way you can stick with something and the way that you um, soldiers assist each other with the idea of the battle buddy you know you always have somebody looking out for you is something that that I've really taken with me is it, the end goal might have been totally different from a life of peace but the process of doing things skillfully continues to apply yeah so did you get a lot of exposure to outdoor training and how to be in <clears throat> different kinds of weather at different 
hours of the day? Uh, and did that help with the natural kind of, I think people have a certain amount of fear of being alone in nature? Mm. Uh, it's really curious. Yeah, it's the military. Um, when you get down to it, they spend a lot of time in nature. And I think something of that has to do with an appreciation of the blank spots in the map. Like the military sees uh, a country boundary and says, well, we want to own that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if there's a dot there or there's a blank space. They want to own it. And so they're sending soldiers into this blank spot. And you spend a lot of time in nature. You spend a lot of time eating food out of cans or bags. You spend a lot of time just waiting. And that certainly had an effect on me. Like I had a sense that I I could, yeah, if I have the proper gear, I can go pretty much anywhere and just wait for instructions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that that does come a bit into monasticism, but... Again, the intent was was not there, and that that filters down. So the intent in the military is you're going out with the proper gear, and wait for instructions. There's there's not a lot of going out and being satisfied with your experience. And in monasticism, that's what we end up doing is we end up saying, I won't be the most satisfied if I can be on the other side of this glass and not suffer. And that takes that takes a lot of that take, that's something you have to build up gradually. You can't just throw it that in your pack and march off. You have to learn that. And then you left the military. Uh, was that a um, were they, was that a mutual uh, decision? Uh, the military left you, and you left the military. Uh, yeah, or did they throw you out? <laughs> it was it was it was mutual to a point. We. I think we we agreed that I was no I would no longer fit. Mm-hmm. There was a turning point where I understood I was I was ultimately the one responsible for my actions. And when this came up, I just had a very clear sense of the five precepts as the Buddha described, and that if I kill, I am responsible for the karma of that action. I will get I will get an unpleasant result. And I really felt myself sort of teetering over a lifestyle that would be completely unwholesome. And I pulled back. I said, I, I cannot, I cannot do that. And eventually, the military agreed. It's like, well, then you shouldn't be here. And I, it was also a real uh, experience of understanding renunciation. If I had been attached to to my my vet status, if I had been attached to college money, if I had been attached to the security of a paycheck, uh, or even the good name of somebody who had com- fulfilled a contract until the government decided I was, I had fully fulfilled it, uh, which takes longer and longer these days when there's there's active conflict. If I had been attached to that, I could not have gotten out. But there was a point where I said, no, no, my spiritual welfare is the most important thing, is the project of my life. I have to be ready to let anything go. And when I told them I, I was willing to sacrifice, I was willing, if there was jail time necessary for me to get out, then that's that was my responsibility. I signed the contract, I took responsibility. And as soon as I made that decision, it, I, I was out almost immediately. They just said, "Oh, well, then there's there's no reason for you to be here." And I was I was I was on my feet with a bit of pocket money and the freedom to explore. Then I, I had I had said, "I'm all in on this spiritual project," and they said, "Okay, go do it." And then I was there. I was on the other side of the glass mm-hmm. with a backpack, and it it began. Right. So you. Then went straight to the monastic life. Uh, you you encountered monastic life where in a book, 
where did you encounter the idea of Buddhist monks? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, at first, that's uh, I had no idea what I was pursuing. And I think that's ultimately why I've become a Buddhist monk is because the Buddhist teaching makes it clear our, our human state, the human conditions, what can be done by one who is seeking a way out of suffering. Um, but I didn't have that at first. I had no basis for, for, I had never, I didn't realize Buddhism was being practiced. I had a basic idea of it that I had heard second and third hand from history teachers or, or social studies teachers. So what I really went out seeking was um, the precepts. I went out seeking a moral life. And I said, that's well, that's got to be the basis, because I've seen what an immoral life will do. I was getting more angry, more depressed, and more sunk in worldly concerns. So I went out seeking a moral life, and it took me backpacking across Asia for six months, uh, looking in different countries. And... There were many things that called out to me on that trip and said, this is the way, this is the goal, this is the spiritual, uh, the highest spiritual pursuit. But when I came to Thailand, uh, a Buddhist country, um, I saw something that didn't cry out and said, this is it, this is the way. I saw something very quiet. I saw people living a moral life and not not expecting any recognition, not expecting any return, um, just doing it because it was good, good for goodness sake. And to see, uh, to walk by a temple early in the morning in Bangkok and suddenly 15 monks come out of the temple on their alms round. And you they're, they're, understand there's a monastery on the other side of, of a wall and you hadn't heard, you hadn't, you hadn't heard anything. You didn't hear people, you didn't hear, you know, cats and dogs, you didn't hear the clatter of dishes. Um, there, there were 20 human beings living peacefully and quietly and harmoniously on the other side of that wall, and they just come out in front of me. I, I couldn't, I couldn't ignore that. That that was a sign I was looking for of a, a way to lead a peaceful life. Yeah, the sound of silence. Yes, it was, it was deafening. I, I could yeah, fabulous. So you made your way to eventually to California, where that was where you were yes. ordained at a Bayagiri yes, monastery. I, I, by Gary. And when you came in there, did that remind you of a military base in any way? Um, <laughs> Uniforms. <laughs> it's yeah. There, there. You could say there are a lot of similarities. Um, I mean, you have this shaven head and the uniforms and the the hierarchical structure, um, but it just felt so different. Right. Um, whereas in the military, you you have to be told what to do, and there's always this sense of resisting. It's like, how much do I give to Uncle Sam? Mm-hmm. You know, of my time and my blood, sweat, and tears. And it's always this patriotic duty. But in the monastery, nobody's you're nobody makes you go. Like you'll never get there unless you really want to be there. And so every day is this voluntary experience of, well, do, do I value this? Do I want to give anything? And these are not people who need me, but these are people who will accept my, my, uh, my participation. They'll accept me if, if I want to stay. And so um, quickly, very quickly, the military sense um, faded away. I'll accept the, the sense of, of team and camaraderie. The, the absolute best parts of the military mm-hmm. were here and institutionalized uh, and put towards a worthy goal. Mm-hmm. 
So let's fast forward to your roaming around in New England. Now, I heard through a few other monks that there was this monk. I th- well, you, you wrote me a letter uh, asking if you could borrow from some of my Dhamma talks, mm-hmm. of course, which are all, anybody anybody out there, please borrow from my Dhamma <laughs> talks. <laughs> and you are wandering around in New England mm-hmm. all in all kinds of weather, all kinds of situations, very similar to the time of the Buddha. Uh, this happens in Thailand, and I think some of the Western monks for sure uh, have explored that, but that's just, uh, over a sustained period of time. This is almost mm-hmm. three years you've been wandering around out there in these little New England towns. So uh, tell us about your encounters with ordinary American people as you walk down the street of a little town in New Hampshire mm-hmm. in the robes. What what does that feel like? What what happens? It's well, it's it's it's. It's just a sort of magic. It's um, to there's there are many days when I realize I don't have to. And so it's a it's a voluntary experience. I don't have to go out into the town with my bowl. Um, there are monasteries. There are there are homeless shelters. There's all sorts of places I could go to get food. But it feels very much like an offering of myself. An offering of this we call it the sign of the samana or the the appearance of a monastic in the world is soothing. It gives a sense of uh, mortality for one. The monk is a sign that you know we're all we're all we're all we're all finite. Everything is finite, and it it reminds us how well are we spending our time. Mm-hmm. I find that people really respond to that as they see me. Um, you'll see people who are uh, I see cars going by. It's just it's just built into my my perception now. But that cars go by and people are on their way to work. And I have a lot of a lot of compassion because if there are, if there isn't that sign of the samana, they would go from point A their home to point B their work, and the time in between is wasted. It's mm-hmm. merely a commute. But if along the way uh, they happen to see me and I'm walking slowly and mindfully, one step to the next, I can turn left, I can turn right, I can go forward, I can answer if somebody beckons me to come closer. I can have a chat on the side of the road for an hour if somebody's in need. Uh, that that can have an effect on them, an effect that can carry on into their day. So that's really a lot of my interactions with people is just providing that sense of I'm here, I'm here now. You tap in for five seconds, hi, you know, good luck mm-hmm. on your day at work. Or I can tap in for five hours. It's like, oh, okay, this sounds serious. Let's. Let's sit down. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's have a, a cup of coffee and just just talk it through. How can I help? Mm-hmm. You, there's there kind of a two societies out there. There's one mainstream and very conventional, and then there's an alternative society which has been around since. Well, probably it's an, a factor of American culture, but it manifested in the '60s as hippies and so forth. Mm-hmm. Do you encounter people who are on the alternative side that are Looking at you and saying, "Now what's this?" and, mm-hmm. and far out, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and versus uh, mainstream conservative types mm-hmm. looking at and wondering, "What's this?" Mm-hmm. You feel a difference between these two uh, cultures? I do. Yeah, I, I do, and I, I think they're they're there. Uh, it's and it's very nice to. To recognize that that we still that, that we have that and that 
they seem like two cultures, but actually that's one culture, and that the two complement each other. So what I what I began to realize is in Asia, um, they they have this sense that you know the 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 hairy you know hermit up on top of the mountain, he's the one you can go to with really important questions about life and everything, mm-hmm. because he has nothing to lose by giving you a straight answer. Mm-hmm. He he has he has nothing invested. He's not trying to sell you anything. If you go up to him and ask him about life, death, you know, birth, aging, suffering, all that, he'll just tell you straight out: do this, do that. You know, it's up to you. And uh, and in Asia, they really value that. The king will go out of his way to to visit a monastery. You know, the 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 emperors will listen to the to the sages. Um, there's a sense that this person who's at the fringe of society has a valuable perspective and that that informs society and this is why they take care of their monastics and in the West we we still have this sort of counterculture where we have we have hobos we have homeless people we have surfers and mm-hmm. and and um, people who do drugs we have oh, this whole fringe part of society is informing society. It's giving a valuable perspective when it's done with intention, and they're they're providing a perspective that you you think you you think in mainstream culture that you need this, you need this, you need this, you need this to be happy. But look at me, mm-hmm. I have none of that, and I I am happy too. Do you find a lot of curiosity on the part of the uh, fringe uh, culture about your lifestyle? And your values? Yes, because we, we haven't we haven't really had the appreciation in our culture. So, um, in in Western culture, there's been a lot of like pushing away the fringe element, pushing away the fringe element. They can't make it in society. We don't we don't we don't want these influences. But um, when they see a monastic, they can see that there was a reason for that. It's because um, homeless people or hermits or or, or sages, uh, philosophers, they they weren't providing something. They weren't reputable. They they weren't um, somebody you could you could um, you could rely on. Or you could go to for a serious answer because they weren't cultivating anything. Mm-hmm. But in the monastic, people see that this is well, this is somebody who's respectable. This is somebody who's given up a lot to do this. This is somebody who is very energetic and very interested. Um, who's thinking about you know important themes, yeah, important things, important themes in our life? So let's talk about the first week when you stepped out the door three years ago into uncertainty. Tell us about your psychological condition and, and the practical matter of where did you stay, what did you eat? The um, yeah the the uncertainty was the uncertainty was the most daunting thing. Um, and I recognized right away that this was why this was why monks weren't doing it yet. There was there was so much that was uncertain. There is no tradition in Thailand, if you decide to do this, there's a long-standing tradition, centuries of tradition about how you do it. They have specific gear, specific protocols, um, even specific temples and regions you can go to, but we don't have that in the West. But I also recognize that um, it's totally human 
to be afraid of uncertainty, to recognize that fear is a response to the unknown, and the unknown is simply, I, I just don't have answers for things, but that fear is just an emotion, and uh, it's actually a logical emotion. And once once I knew that, then I knew, okay, well, stepping out the door, I'm going to be afraid. I'm going to be clueless. I am going to be uh, uninformed. I'm going to be blundering through this uh, every step of the way because I, I don't have any answers. But I took that on as part of the practice. So as I stepped out the door, I... Um, I accepted the uncertainty, I accepted it, and I and I learned to live not by answers, not by this is the way I do it and how can I get to get to this. This is the proper shelter, how can I find that? Because then it would always be outside or it'd always be in the future, getting to the next proper shelter. But rather to live by principles, you know, um, what does shelter provide? Uh, for a monastic shelter shields us from heat, it shields us from cold, it shields us from the sun and wind and from bugs. That's its function, to provide seclusion from elements that are more than we can take. And so as I stepped out, um, the one certainty I could I could see was that I would know when I can, when, when I, I'm in situation that I can take. And when I'm not too hot, not too cold, not too hungry, um, not being eaten by something, I'm okay. And that this is this is what I what I, what I was going for all along was this sense of okay. And so very quickly, the, um, the uncertainty was tempered with a sense of certainty. When I fell in line with just a principle, it's like I am getting enough shelter. Well, then there's no longer any uncertainty. There's no longer any basis for fear, and I could see the fear when it came up, when it when it would come up as just anticipation. And we all do this. We anticipate our next um, challenge. But if we, if we just cut that step out, then we can we can be we can be present. We can be satisfied in this moment by just recognizing that no, okay, no, I, I've I've. I've fulfilled my needs at this moment. I'm okay. The next moment come when it will. I've prepared for it by by developing the, these principles and knowing what um, what our supports are for. What do you remember your first meal on the road? Where did it come from? It it came from a very generous person. I I do not remember. Um, but it's it's always been the same for 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 three. Um, Three rains retreats, three for for two years now. It has always been um, an unsolicited um, donation. It has been charity, and it's always been um, to me because I'm hungry. Um, the, I would say 95% of the people I've met don't really know much of anything about Theravada monks. They don't. They don't. And many of them have been quite blatant. And it's like, I'm going to give you this. I don't know what you are, and I don't want to know what you are. But I can see that you're hungry. <laughs> and it's it's always been that, and it's always very humbling and very simple. It's like this is this is a compassionate response. This is a sincere response, one human being to the next. And um, yeah, and it, and it's it just it just it. Um, brings us out of the 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 attention on the food 
Is it enough food? Is it the right food? Is it hot? Is it is it, it has a, does it have enough calories for the road? And it just gets you back to that sense of this is a support. This is good, and it has come in a completely blameless way. So that first offering, I'm sure, it was completely blameless. Uh, I, I I I was receiving it as one who has who has nothing, and and nothing is not a hindrance. It means I have a space that can be filled with something. And um, so it had no, uh, no, no. It never has any impact on the mind. You can live your life, and at 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 best, it will be it will be a neutral experience. Okay, there's, I'm not hungry anymore, but um, it, it can really be something quite profound. You see somebody get joy out of that offering, and then even before you eat the food, mm-hmm. <laughs> you feel full, mm-hmm. and that's that's really. What I go for. Is there a typical person who uh, will offer you food? Uh, women more than men? Uh, do teenagers offer you food? Do mm-hmm. old people offer you food? Like, is there? Are you starting to get a sense of like, this is a typical uh, offering here? It, what? Who is that? Yeah, I, I, I can say this. The sense I've gotten is 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 absolutely everybody. Hmm. And uh, but there, Even, are there kids occasionally on the way there, to school that get an apple out of their lunch or something? Yeah, yeah, no. In Thailand, the 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 children will stand at the edge of the village in the morning, and they'll look for the monks. Mm-hmm. And when the monks come on alms round, they go dancing into the village. Mm-hmm. They promulau, promulau. The mm-hmm. monks have arrived mm-hmm. to let people know it's time to offer. But it's the same in the West. Mm-hmm. You know, kids will be looking at, out the out their window and they say, "Mom." It's a monk. It's a monk. <laughs> they, they, there's something very basic and archetypical about the monk that that everybody can connect with. Do you stay around a village for a while? Um, yeah. Uh, and then, like, you might stay a month or longer mm-hmm. around a, a particular village, and then you would walk to a. And of course, and tell us a little bit about the layout of villages and walking in New England. Yeah. Well, I, I don't have I, I don't have any um, specific answer about how long to stay somewhere. Um, just a principle that I'm developing, and the principle is to not be a burden. Uh, so I'm very cognizant of if it's the same people who are making offerings every day. Is this draining on their resources? Is this draining on their time? Or can I just move through the move through the town every day? And different people um, are approaching me. Different people offering things when they have a chance, and um, the whole village is supporting me, as opposed to just a few people. And so that's the principle. And uh, I'll pay attention to it because I, I want monasticism to survive, and it survives when it, it it it's good for both the donor and the receiver. When uh, when they're getting as much out of taking care of a monastic. As I, I'm getting out of being taken care of, and uh, but I, I don't stay a very, I don't stay an overly long time in any one village here in New England. Um, uh, the the villages popped up uh, about a, a horse cart ride apart, so seven, eight, nine miles apart, and they're just dotted throughout the landscape. Some of them are quite small. They they only they have a church and a cemetery. And that's the town, um, but others with a, with just enough commerce that people are coming into the town center every day. So, 
I, I gravitate towards these little towns that just have a, a, a central focus uh, because I can I can go in and without any planning, without any preparation, without any advance notice, I can just m- move into the center of town and I don't have to say anything. I just be there and to be seen and to trust that um, there's a principle in the universe that uh, good people want to associate with good people. It's you know it's 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 just natural. You when when you're good, you want to have good friends because it just increases the goodness. And um, and so if I'm just there, I'm on a corner. I'm simple. I'm peaceful. I am I'm attentive to what's going on around me. It's 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 very attractive to those who who would like to to have a conversation or to have a good interaction or just um, just be friendly, and and that's often all it takes. So I, I feel that um, wandering in this in this part of the country can really just be just any day. Am I within range of one of these villages? Does it does it have a town center? And then I don't I don't have to think or plan about it. Just trust in the tradition. Just trust in the principles that have been passed down for millennia. Do some people express regret when you leave? Oh, they're, 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 oh they're, you're going. They're, we like you here. We've got the village monk. Yeah, yeah. They. I mean, yeah. They. It really. Um, they're really, they're always saddened, and it's it's always heart wrenching to to leave a village when I've been, I've been there say for the three months of the rains retreat, and I've been dependent on this one village. You know, it's make or break. I have to, I walk in with my bowl, and whether I eat or not is up. It's just to people value me being there, am I relevant? And after three months, people are telling me, "You're so relevant. You're such an institution. You give us such hope. You give." It. They say, I, "I I hold on my bowl, and something goes in it, and they tell me thank you, <laughs> because it's so hard in our culture to to give and to yes. feel good about giving." Yeah, it's a beautiful opportunity. How, so let's talk about bad weather. Hmm? When it's are you you know so you're staying under a plastic tarp sometimes. You're mm-hmm. staying in. Uh, well, what, where are you staying? It's where um, the, the, the Dutanga, the austere practice, um, actually there's five of them uh, around shelter, mm-hmm. and they, they describe a place that's apart from the, the flow of regular society, the flow of householders and people who are uh, sort of wrapped up in, in sensuality, mm-hmm. things that disturb the mind. So it could be at the root of a tree. It could be in a in an open in an open field. It could be in a in a cemetery even, um, or is it simply to be. Have you ever stayed in a cemetery? I've tried it out. Mm-hmm. I've tried it out. And the wonderful thing about these principles is, since there's five of them for shelter, um, they're ex- they're exclusive. Like to dwell at the root of a tree and to be in a forest, or or can you can do both of those at the same time. Mm-hmm. But you can't do a cemetery and a forest mm. at the same time, uh, unless mm. the, the forest has overgrown the cemetery. And so I've practiced, I've tried each of them, and I found that some of them are very helpful for practice. They lead to a contentment and a sense that I have appropriate shelter. And then others, like the cemetery practice, I find are completely useless. It's just me sitting around with a bunch of stones and corpses saying... Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't quite get anything out of this, I, and you don't seem to be getting out of, anything out of this. 
And so I, 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 I feel very good that, okay, I, I don't need that practice. I, but I do, I love to be in the forest and I love to be in a, in a, in a dry um, pine forest where there's, there isn't much um, undergrowth. And I've, I've found, for me, um, a standard of shelter that I can look for, that I can look for anywhere. I can look out at a horizon, and I can see that that little bit popping up there is, is you know, that's that's a northern, a northern pine, you know, so underneath there's going to be pine needles spread out. And, okay, so there's at least some shelter over there, and then over there, and then over there, and then over there. And so I don't even need to worry about shelter. I know really I'm surrounded de- by it. You develop an eye for this after a while. You really yeah. develop an eye and an intuition about this. Yeah, without attachment, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's not quite at the level of craving. It's just a preference. Right. If I were to, to pitch my shelter in this, in this maple forest, there'd be undergrowth. But I do that from time to time to, while I'm traveling. I, it's like, oh, this isn't good enough, and you know, it's there's obviously there'll be traffic that goes by. But you know, it's a night. It's a single night. You can do anything for a single night. Do you ever get offered uh, shelter? I I do I do, and it's always organic. It's always unsolicited. So I seek to cultivate these practices of dwelling in the forest, dwelling at the foot of a tree. But I'm, if if I got attached to them, it wouldn't be Buddhism. It wouldn't be the Buddhist teaching. If I desired only this practice and shut out everything else, it would just be another um, impediment for peace of mind. So I, I aim for for being in the woods, but I, I I don't demand it. And if somebody is offering me shelter as I'm passing through, I, I really consider: is this in line with the Dhamma? Is this person um, interested is is this an invitation to something else? Like they would they would like to spend time around me, or they'd like, or or they're just concerned. Um, in the winter, I'm offered shelter a lot, and it's because people you know, it actually physically pains them mm. to see me to see me cold, to see me unprotected, and there's there's no shortage of shelter, and I get a real sense that our culture has been missing something. It's been missing this. Um, this sort of the travelers and the the hospitality that we all want to provide it mm-hmm. it really um, it gives meaning to the things that we have when we can share them and if we guard them and we hold on to them then it's at best it's satisfying me but it's not an offering it's not other it's not blameless because I've I've guarded it I've hoarded it. But the moment that I share it with someone, it's it's not even a burden, mm-hmm. you know. We're, we're we're this is for both of us. This is for the support uh, of people, and, and everybody inclines to that. They, they they there's just a sense of trust. Um, it's hard to for for a person who owns a house to let a to just let the average homeless person come in and stay the night, because you know this person can this person can have attachments. This person can have bad habits. This person can have immoral habits. But they see a monastic, and there's this instant sense wherever I go. Is it well? This is this person. You know, if he's if he's not perfect, he's 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 willing to try to be. He's he's willing, and he's following moral precepts. He could not be a monk if he wasn't. And so there's a real sense of trust to say this is the best possible friend to have. You know, it's, I'll offer this guy shelter and see what comes of it. What's it like when you get sick? Have you been sick in the last three years? 
I've been almost constantly sick. <laughs> constantly it's, sick. It's it's human life. Yeah. You know, so the teachers will say it's one thing after the next. That is having a human body. Even at its best, it is a bag of goo that you have to kind of shift to prop up on a chair or else it'll slide off on its own. Um, but it, it's very susceptible to illnesses. But whenever... Whenever I get too hung up on it, you know, I might come past, you know, bear droppings or something. You catch a catch a look and you see there's maggots, there's there's half digested food. It's like nothing out in nature is thriving. Mm-hmm. Nothing out in nature has 100% of the recommended daily value of 78 vitamins as we're as we're taught to pursue in the Western culture. It's the, Things get by, and that that is actually quite good. Like survival is enough. Do do you ever have to ask for medicine? I have recently. I've I've had to, I had to let people know that I, I picked up Lyme's disease Lyme's? recently, mm-hmm. and it's an occupational hazard. But um, and um, the, but far more often than the times I've had to to let people know that this has happened. Is there? Is there any medicine around is that people are offering and they're giving me invitations that I'm I, I just have nothing to do with. They say if they say you know if you if you if you ever need anything, you come find me. You let me know. I'd be happy to provide it. So when I got Lyme's disease, I, I simply I simply let these people know. It was like I I've picked this up. I don't quite know what to do. And this is this is um, this is a rural community where people take care of each other, and so there is a real sense of networking. And they and they said, well, there there are these antibiotics. Obviously, you're going to take these, but over the over the decades, you know, this is where Lyme's disease really was first noticed. Um, they've they're starting to get a sense of the herbal antidotes as well, and so I was able to just fold in with this natural culture. There's there's a um, there's a plant called knotweed that just grows. It's an invasive plant and grows all over the place. Uh, and somebody said, oh, well, that's one of the the local remedies for this. And he just went out into his garden. He pulled up one that was invading his his tomato patch, and we chopped it up. We made a tea. Uh, this is what medicine really can be. It's, you know, okay, an ailment has arisen. We know what to do now. Um, you treat it with what you have at hand. And when the ailment subsides, you don't need medicine anymore. You know, it's you, and medicine is for the curing of an active ill. And most of the, most of the, most of the conditions that we, we experience in life don't need a medicine. Mm-hmm. An ache, a pain, getting a hold... The Buddha said, "Actually, it's quite natural. You see, there's nothing out of place here." Do you have a chance to um, teach? Do you get invited to give a little talk or converse with a group of people, things like this? Uh, I, I I do, and um, and more and more as people get um, uh, get used to the to the to the idea that there can be a monk um, within reach. That there can be a spiritual figure moving through their town. Uh, most of my interactions, especially um, when I, when I haven't been in a place for a while or I'm just coming to a place for the first time, is just like this. It's just a conversation. It's question and answer. It's people trying to just 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 asking, like going to the to the hermit with their questions about life. 
and trying to, to, to get a perspective that they cannot get through mainstream media. Um, but then um, over time, people have gotten a sense um, that monks, because we do this all the time, we develop a sort of uh, a, a skill and also that we have these wonderful teachings that are so useful for human life, that are centered around the, the basic um, difficulties in human life and provide really clear guidance and solutions and perspectives um, on how to how to get through um, difficult times, and so they want that disseminated. This is like, this has been missing in our culture. This this uh, the Buddha's um, the Buddha's philosophy, the Buddha's approach to life. Um, it helps. It makes it easier. And they and they would they would like to hear the Buddha's teaching. In a way, I'm just sort of um, stewarding it through the generations. Uh, for the first year, I, I sort of categorically said, I am, you know, in my tradition, monks are usually not asked to teach until they're 10 years. That's when we start calling them Ajahn from the word Acharya, which means teacher. Uh, until then, they're still learning, they're still learning. Um, but after the first year, I really got a sense, you know, there, this is not about um, making me a guru, this is not about putting me on a pedestal. It's simply because I know the Buddhist teachings. It's simply because I am working with them every single day. And that this, these teachings are valuable and people would, would like to hear them. So I've started to, to open up to the idea that when, there, when there's somebody in front of me who um, is interested in the Dhamma, that that is the most important thing. Um, not food or shelter or what I'll do tomorrow or where I'll stay the rains retreat. That interaction could be the most important interaction in this person's life. And and so then I know um, I can teach. I can teach because it's coming from compassion. This person is ready. And um, and since it comes from compassion, it's wholesome. There'll be, there'll be no attachment to it. So I say whatever I can that may be useful and then I walk away, and it's 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 a very wonderful practice I have because if I go ten minutes down the road, I'm anonymous again. Our conversation with Pamuto could have gone on indefinitely. There's a, it's a very rich life, and I'm sure that he has found this maybe the richest three years of his existence. <laughs> it keeps getting better. It keeps getting better every day. And it's also uh, very important as a, as a symbolic figure. Uh, many young monks would, are aspire to this idea. And lots of people are, lots of lay people also are inspired by this. So this is an important activity that you're doing. This is one reason why I wanted to uh, interview you. Basically, you're, compared to the others that I'm interviewing, you're a young monk, <clears throat> but <clears throat> this is very important as a mendicant monk. In this modern society, is this possible in this day and age? And look, you have yes. shown that it is possible. Not only possible, but a rich experience. And uh, perhaps we will see more of this. And also, if a monk goes out like this, then... One's relationship to a stable monastery is different. You don't feel like there's no place I can go. I have to live in this 
only one monastery forever because it's not possible to be out there. So it, it liberates you from that and being feeling trapped in a monastery. Yeah. You're making a choice to live out there or making a choice to live in a monastery. And of course, both are the both are viable options, but there is a sense of freedom about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're kind of a, a leading the way in that, uh, showing that it is viable and possible, but only with the right attitude. Yeah, you won't last long if you don't have the right attitude. Yeah, and it's the attitude that adds, uh, leading the way into a tradition. Yes. For me, it's just carrying on an ancient tradition and um, putting that first. That's that's what will bring it to the West, not to find innovative solutions, but to find the real faith that we've got what we need to, yes. to practice. Excellent. So, Pamuto Iku.